Well, good morning, everyone. Um, as many of you know, I uh, am a big sports fan. I grew up playing sports. I love watching sports. Uh, now that Graham's in high school, with between him and his friends, we have a steady diet of events to choose from, and it's fun. We really enjoy it. But what I like most about sports is seeing a team play well together, just seeing good teamwork. Let me, let me give you an example. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the NBA. I don't really watch a lot of pro basketball games. But I really enjoyed watching the NBA Finals this year. The San Antonio Spurs and the Miami Heat, right? Two very different teams on paper. In fact, if you were to line them up, the talent that you would see uh, acquired on the, uh, the Heat would, by all estimations, make them the better team, right? They were incredibly stacked. But when you watched the series, you saw the power of teamwork because San Antonio did a tremendous job of moving the ball around and different players had different roles. You saw big men out on the perimeter. You saw little guys taking a drive towards the basket and they were on defense, they were on offense. It was just great. So in the end, what happened is you had what was arguably the better team going away without winning the series because they got beat by somebody who played well together, had good teamwork. You see that not only in sports. How many of y'all have ever been to the symphony? I know the Kennedys were there recently. Grant and I are big fans of the cello, right? So it's fun to look at all the different instruments in a symphony, and I really admire the talent of all those musicians. But what really grabs us is when all those instruments come together and you see or hear that, that harmony of those different uh, instruments in a, in a symphony or the different voices in a choir. So I think all of us can appreciate the the harmony of of a diverse group of people when they come together as a group and and what an impact that has. And really, I think that should be one of the most significant attributes of the Christian church. This should be a place where you find a collection of people who come from all different backgrounds and may not have any reason to be together except for what they have in common through their faith in Jesus Christ. And, and that harmony of, of unity and fellowship that they have with one another should be one of the most attractive features of the church in the world in which we live. Complete strangers, right? Coming together as brothers and sisters in Christ. I know that was my experience a few weeks ago when we met together with some other churches here in town, Monterey Baptist up the street, Redeemer across the street, uh, way over in uh, Wolferth, First Baptist in Wolferth. But those churches came together for a time of worship and, and fellowship as we ate, uh, had a picnic with each other, and we had a great time. And I'll tell you something, I went into that not knowing most of the people there. But I can assure you that there was an immediate connection and a sincere love that could be felt the second you walk into that room and were with those people who were brothers and sisters in Christ. I've had a similar experience in Mexico when I've sat at a table with people I didn't know, whose language I didn't speak, but whose heart for Christ I truly understood. And we had that in common. Just this weekend, uh, Jason and Christy and uh, Bruce and I went to a family ministry conference in Dallas. And it was so good to see how God had knit our hearts together as we walked through that time with one another as it relates to our shared passion to partner with parents to raise up the next generation of Christian disciples. 
and to sit in that room of hundreds of people who had that same heart to, to go and make disciples. And we had that in common. The unity of the church should be one of our most significantly appealing qualities as brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, God has designed the church to reflect the beauty of His unity. And this should be an amazing reflection of His redemptive work in His people when we come together. When we do what Paul says, when he says, preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Which would explain why Paul highlights this issue very first as he begins this part of his letter. If you'll think about it, remember Corinth, the church in Corinth? It's a mess. There's all kinds of issues going on. There's immorality, hypocrisy, abuse. There's some vile things happening within this Christian church. And yet, the very first thing that Paul speaks to is the importance of unity, the value of who we are as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so if there's anything that we need to pay attention to, it appears that this is it. Because from this, all the other issues can be addressed. Without it, none of it matters. Unity of the church is our most important quality. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we do come to you this morning as we look at your word and we realize that... um, It is significant that we preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It is important, as Paul would indicate, by addressing this as the very most important issue of all the issues that exist in the church in Corinth, that he would speak to this first. It's important because it applies to us at Melanie Park Church in Lubbock, Texas, right here today. And so, Father, as we walk through this together, would you allow us to understand the value, the importance, and what purpose it serves to be bonded together in that peace that we have through faith and trust in you. That's our heart's desire. and We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you would, open your Bibles if you're not already there to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, verse 10 is where we'll start this morning and pick up where we left off last. Just to remind you, last week we looked at how Paul began his letter to the church in Corinth. As we talked about the church, it's a, really a big mess in a lot of ways. But instead of focusing on all the things that were wrong, he instead focused his attention on what had been made right through their faith in Jesus Christ. And now as he begins to deal with the issues of concern, he has that same heart in mind. Read with me beginning in verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren... By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. He starts this letter by affirming his relationship to the Corinthian church as brothers and sisters in Christ. He calls them brethren. And then he goes on to tell them that he's writing to exhort them in the name of our Lord 
Jesus Christ. That word exhort is the same word that we find in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, when Paul says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to make your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. See, Paul knows that he has no power to bring conviction to the hearts of those who will read his letter. He has no authority to rule over their lives. And so he's not here to to bark out orders. He's there to make a plea, to urge them in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul's making it clear that he and his readers share in a common submission to the righteous rule of Christ in their lives. He's not standing apart from the Corinthians to point his finger at all their problems. He's standing with them, sharing in the responsibility to do what is right. Which is why he urges the Corinthians to agree, as he says in verse 10, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, the language that Paul uses here is kind of borrowed. He's using it purposefully, I believe, because it's the same words used to describe clothing or fabric. He's trying to make the part that, point that, that God has knit us together as a church. He's interwoven our lives with one another. And, and there is no reason that those should be separated, that those should be torn apart, that there should be any divisions among us. Instead, we should be held together by the same mind and the same judgment. But as he says that, I I want us to think about what he intends in terms of how do we really attain that level of unity, being of the same mind and of the same judgment. I mean, when was the last time you were in a room with 200 people and you all agreed on everything and never had any problems with one another? Anybody? So, So what exactly does that mean? Well, I think to answer that question, we can look at one of Paul's other letters where he expands on this a little bit more. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. Keep your finger in Corinthians, but turn to Philippians chapter 1. And I want you to look at verse 27 with me. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Paul, writing to Philippians, says, "...only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ." So that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I will hear of you. That you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the sake of the gospel. Now go down to chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. You see, the one mind that Paul is referring to is made possible because of the one spirit. And that one spirit is the indwelling presence of God in the heart of every believer. And God is not a God of confusion, (laughs) He doesn't intend to send us all in different directions, hoping that we somehow figure it out. He's a God of order, a God of purpose. And He wants to move us in a common direction to fulfill His mission, that one purpose. And so when God's people are being led by God's Spirit, 
they will be united with one another for one purpose. You always know that God is at work in His people when they come around His Word and they move in a a common direction. And that mission that we are called to serve is what's important. Because the purpose of the church is not simply to meet together in order to agree on sound doctrine. What we believe must impact how we live. Our unity has to have purpose attached to it. Let me illustrate it to you this way. Some of you are going to go home today and you're going to watch football, right? Tell me how exciting would this be? Let's say you're watching football, you see this team come out, they've got uniforms on, they're looking sharp, kind of like Oregon or Seattle, I mean flashy, right? You see the big lineman guys, you see the quarterback, you see those quick receivers. Let's say they all get together and they form a huddle. Quarterback looks at his team and says, okay guys, on three, ready, break. That was awesome. Let's do that again. One, two, break. And let's say they do that over and over again. And not once do they run a single play. How exciting would that be? Would any of you guys be real thrilled to go home and to tune into that? Not so much. They might be real unified in how well they can come together in that huddle, but if they don't play the game... Does it really matter? You see, Paul is calling the Corinthians to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the sake of the gospel. Our unity only matters when we fulfill that purpose. What I want you to notice is when you look at this church, how these factions have developed, how these huddles have formed, if you will. According to Chloe's testimony, which Paul apparently considers to be reliable, she says, and I don't want you to miss this, it says, based on, it says Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now listen to this. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying. You see, that little simple statement says, a whole lot about this church. It tells us that these are not people who are being led by one spirit. These are individuals who are voicing their own personal opinions. What each one is saying. See, this is a church that is suffering from eye disease. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Peter. I am of Christ. This is the pattern of the culture that has invaded the culture of the church. Where people find their identity in their social connections, being attached to the right group. And again, this is important. Because when there is no shared unity within the body of Christ, then we cannot fulfill the purpose, the mission by which we've been called. Lots of huddles, but no game being played. Paul wasn't trying to be Dr. Phil here. He's not writing to the Corinthians to say, hey guys, I just want you to get along together. That's not what he's doing. He realizes that the disunity of the church is what destroys the very mission of God. We cannot live for Christ 
when the most important thing in our life is me and my opinion. It won't work. And I want you to notice the people's names in verse 12. Take a look at that again. As you look at those, they're pretty obvious. Paul was the founding father of the Corinthian church, right? So a man of great significance to this church. The next one is Apollos. What we know about Apollos is that he was a Hellenistic Jew and apparently a very eloquent man, a great communicator, and had a following because he was so good at articulating things to the people that he spoke to. The next one we see is Peter. Peter, of course, is kind of a spokesman for the disciples, a real leader in the church in Jerusalem. And all these men have apparently, after Paul was there establishing a church at some point or another, been a part of this church and, and, and been a part of their lives. And the Corinthians apparently were aligning themselves with these people of influence to prove their value in that church culture. But one of the ones that seems a little confusing to me when you first look at it, what about those that say, I'm of Christ, right? What is that all about? Well, as I've thought about it, I think since Paul lists it, along with the other divisions and factions, I don't think it's any better than the other ones that he's named. Perhaps these are the people who are the true Christians. Those that have a special endowment of the Spirit that separates them from others in the church. The ones who are of Christ. But regardless of what the real issue is, Behind these factions, the, the point is, it, the issue wasn't with the leaders themselves. We can be certain that Paul and Apollos and Peter and all these names, they weren't the ones behind the factions. They would not want anything to do with this. The issue is that these Christians in Corinth have taken liberty to find their identity by being in what they each considered to be the right group. These were people making individual decisions based on what's best for them. See, the church had essentially become a place to promote their own agenda, not a collection of people committed to the mission of God. You see the difference? And here's another interesting thing that we see in this connection that I believe Paul probably makes. There have been artifacts discovered in this area that have inscribed on them, I am of Aphrodite, or I am of Dimitri. And I think very possibly Paul is drawing in on that reality that existed in that culture, and he's telling them, listen, any exclusive loyalty to any person is idolatrous whether it's inside the church or outside the church, it makes no difference. The church is called to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We have been knit together and called to be of one mind, intent on one purpose, and our, only, and our unity only matters if we fulfill that purpose. And what is the purpose? For the sake of what? Say it out loud. For the sake of the gospel. Let me ask you again. We've got one purpose, church. To be of one mind, united in one spirit for the sake of what? That's why we exist. That's our purpose. And it's very important that we understand that our unity means something only when we fulfill that mission that has been given to us. Look at verse 13. 
Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? It goes on and says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. <laughs> the questions in verse 13 are intended to have an obvious answer with some very important implications. And Paul is trying to, to make the point that the Corinthian believers owed no alliance to no one other than Christ himself. It was his sacrifice that was sufficient for the forgiveness of sins. Nobody else could have done that. They were baptized in His name as a commitment to serve His purposes, to carry out His will. That's what they did. And then Paul makes a very curious statement about how thankful he was that he only baptized Crispus and Gaius and, oh, by the way, Stephanus and his household as well. So who are these people? And what significance does that have? Well, if you, and you, we're not going to turn there, but you can write it down if you want to. You can look at Acts chapter 18, verse 8. And when you do, you're going to find that Crispus is a man who was, was a leader of the synagogue, much like we saw with Sosthenes, remember? And so apparently there were multiple leaders in the synagogues, maybe multiple in one or multiple of several synagogues that were in Corinth at the time. And from what we know of this culture, very likely to be a leader, you needed to be a person of, influ of influence, to, to someone who might have contributed something of significance to that particular group. And I don't know that it's all that different than what we have in our own culture. When I was working at UMC, we had the McInturf Conference Center, named after Don McInturf, an influential man within that industry. How many of you ever played golf at the Rawls Golf Course? Yeah, you probably know. You've played there before? Okay, good. Greg Sands has played golf at the Rawls Golf Course. That's amazing. But you know that that golf course is named after Jerry Rawls, who contributed a significant amount to make that happen. Across the street over here, we have Miller Elementary, named after Jane Ann Miller, the wife of our former mayor. The point is, is that these were people of influence and very likely this was what Crispus was. He was a significant influential leader within the Jewish community who has now become a part of the Christian church in Corinth. The next one that you have is Gaius. In, if you want to, in Romans chapter 16, verse 23, you'll find him. Uh, Paul, in writing his letter to the Romans, uh, publicly thanks Gaius um, for allowing the whole church to meet in his home. Now, Paul writes the letter of Romans from Corinth, okay? And so he is recognizing Gaius for his graciousness of allowing the church to meet in his home. And so what we know from Corinth, by, based on the size of the city and the, the, the number of believers that we understand exist there, they probably met typically in house churches, but occasionally would come together in one single place. And apparently, Gaius had a home big enough for everybody to fit in. So, like Crispus, he, he too was a man of influence and probably of wealth. He was a leader among the people. But based on his name, we know that he was Gentile. 
So you see what's happening here. You have an influential leader of the Jewish community who's now within the Christian church. You have an influential leader of the Gentile community who's now in the Christian church. And then there's Stephanus. Stephanus, what we know about him, as we will find later in this same letter, is that he was one of Paul's earliest converts in his first missionary journey. So when this church was formed, uh, Stephanus was one of the early converts who put his faith in Christ. And what we also know is that apparently he and his household have made their way over to Ephesus, where Paul is at the time that he writes this letter to Corinth. And they are the ones who bring the letter back to the city of Corinth to meet in the house of Gaius for the whole church to hear the letter. That in and of itself tells us that he too was a man of influence and likely of financial means because you don't make a trip like that unless you have money in that culture. So these were three men of significant influence in that culture and possibly they represent some of the dividing line of divisions within that church. The Gentile group huddle. The Jewish huddle. And if these... If that was the case, then we can be certain that the Corinthians were aligning themselves with people of influence instead of sharing a common commitment to the cause of Christ. And and this fits very well with what I shared with you last week when we were looking at that background. And then there was a quote from an historian that really struck me that fits that I want to repeat to you again this morning. Listen to what he says. Church was no longer a cohesive community but instead it had become a club. The meetings provided important moments of spiritual insight and exaltation, but they did not have global implications of moral and spiritual change. The Corinthians could gladly participate in the church as one segment of their lives, but this segment, however important, was not the whole or the center. Their perception of the church and of the significance of their faith could correlate well with their lifestyle, which remained fully integrated into the Corinthian society. That's not a good assessment. Because what it tells is that the Corinthians have allowed the values of the world to distract them from the mission of the church. Because when our life as a Christian correlates well with the values of our society... Something's not right. We should be distinctly different than the world around us. When we rally around the personalities of people and elevate them to a place of superiority, something's not right because we've taken our eyes off of Christ. When our church commitment becomes a personal decision based on my personal preferences and what I think is best for me, something's not right. We've allowed the values of the world to distract us from the mission of God. Do you get that? So look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. It'd be easy to read that verse and misunderstand what Paul's saying as if he's um, minimizing the importance of baptism. Like it's not important. And that's not what's happening at all. Paul seems to make the point that he's doing exactly what God had called him to do. Even though from a worldly perspective, he was really not qualified 
for that task. And the reason I say that is because based on Paul's own admission, as well as the admission of others who knew Paul well, he was not a gifted teacher. Paul was not a great communicator. That's why he says, not in cleverness of speech, it's his way of saying, as he says more pointedly in other places, I wasn't great with words, but I was committed to the cause of Christ. And again, I want you to keep the culture in mind here. Because there are few qualities that would have been considered of any more great, greater value than one's ability to speak with eloquence within that culture. In fact, it really mattered less what you had to say and more how you said it. Somehow giving the appearance of, of really engaging with people as if you had great wisdom and understanding on the topic. It really didn't matter as much what you had to say, but how you said it. People in this culture praised the ability of people to persuade others. An effective communicator within the culture of Corinth had great influence. But Paul was clear, I'm not playing that game. He wasn't a gifted speaker. He did not try to persuade people to put their faith in Christ. He says, all he did was look at the cross. And he asked the question, do you know who that is? Do you know why he did that? That's the only thing that mattered. He says later, in his letter, he says, I, will, I have determined to know nothing among you but what? Christ and Him crucified. And I might not even say it well or articulate it, but it's just real important that you understand who that is. That that is God incarnate. That that was a perfect sacrifice. That there was no one else who could have done that. And that that payment was for your sins and for mine. And that the only through our faith and trust in that sacrifice can we be saved. That's the only thing I know. Paul knew that it wasn't his job to impress people or even convince them. But it was his desire to stand with them and strive together for the sake of what? The gospel. The gospel. You see, the Corinthians had taken their eyes off of Christ and put them on other people. And as a result, they were no longer focused on the purpose of the church. Their division had disrupted their mission. Their opinion of man had become more important than their devotion to Christ. And we're just as susceptible in our culture today. And so, with that in mind, I want to suggest that we take care of some business this morning. And that we give ourselves a little spiritual checkup as well, just to make sure that we're not suffering from eye disease. Okay? And so, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to ask yourself this question. What's more important? The common purpose of this church or my personal opinion? Okay, seems like a simple question. Here's how I want you to answer that question in your own heart. I want you to think about the conversations that you have in private with the people in this church, and I want you to ask yourself, what do you talk about? What do you talk about? 
Do you talk about the, the common unity and mission that we have as a body of believers and, and the part that you're playing to, to fulfill that mission, the role that you have to share the gospel of Christ in and through this body of believers? Are you promoting the unity? Or would you be more inclined to, to point out your difference of opinion? Are you looking for ways to be a part of that mission? Or are you explaining the reasons as to why you can't be involved? Because I want you to notice something that's really significant from Paul's example. As we've said more than once, Paul wasn't a great speaker. He wasn't necessarily a gifted communicator, but God had called him to preach the gospel. He was being used by God in a way that would have not necessarily been one of his strengths. And yet, in the church, we often start with our strengths to determine the places we can serve or not serve by giving us permission to opt out if it's just not the right fit. Oh, you know what? I'd love to, to serve in the children's ministry, but I just don't have the gift of teaching. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a hundred times, but I want to tell you something real clearly. There are people down there right now who do not have a gift of teaching, who are making a significant impact for Christ in the lives of our kids. You see, I think we've made a mistake when we wrongly assume that God can only use us when we're exercising our gifts, our strengths. Because if we look at Paul's example, apparently God does his best work in our weaknesses when we have to depend on Him instead of our own abilities. And so maybe what we should do is be more inclined not to start with our gifts, but start with the need. Look in the context of our church and see places that you can be a part of the mission to which we've been called to fulfill. And then trust God to give you what you need to fulfill that task. To gift you through the work of His Spirit to accomplish what we need as a body of believers. I think sometimes we can see this not only happen within the church, but happen in our homes. I've heard Dad say before, you know, my wife, she's the one that really does a great job of, of teaching our kids the Bible, and so, you know, I just I try not to get in the way. But I want you to understand, you don't have that option. You cannot opt out of the call to discipleship in your home because that's what God has called you to do. Husband and wife together, partnering to raise up their children to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. In the church, we can't opt out of being a part of discipleship because we don't have the gift. That's not what it says. It says, go therefore and make disciples. Who's he talking to? Every single one of us. And so as a church, let me urge you to be involved in God's mission. And don't start with where you're gifted or where your preferences might be. Start with just a simple heart to serve. And look around and find a need. And then plug in with courage, trusting. Not in your own abilities. Because God will do some of his best work in your weaknesses. And let him show you what he's capable of. Not what you're capable of. 
let me say this, and this really struck me as I walked through this, and I, I can't continue to go back to this as I'm thinking about this letter of Cor- to Corinth, and I'm thinking, okay, if Paul can write this letter to Corinth, who is filled really with corruption and, and some, some serious problems, and yet look at that body of believers as brothers and sisters in Christ and believe that they can have an impact for Jesus Christ. And I look at you and think, oh my goodness, what could you do with a church like this and people like you? And, and I realize we're not perfect. We've got issues. There are things that we deal with in our lives. But God has knit our hearts together through a common faith that we have in Jesus Christ. He's placed us in His body. It says in Scripture very clearly, just as He desires. And He will equip us with just what we need in the places we serve to accomplish His mission. But our Unity only matters when we are intent on that one purpose. Meeting here together and getting excited about what's going on and then leaving here no different is just the same as that huddle. Getting all excited about their unity and saying one, two, three, break, but never playing a down of football. I want to encourage us as a church to celebrate the unity that God has given us. We are in a special place with a special group of people. And if Paul can look at Corinth and see what he sees in them, then I can only imagine what God can accomplish through you. When we stand together with one spirit and one mind for the sake of what? The gospel. That's what we're here for. So let's be committed to that. Not just right now, in our huddle, but when we go out there to run the place. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, thank you so much for the reminder, because goodness gracious, it's so easy for us to get comfortable, uh, to fall into the same traps of the things that we see in the church of Corinth, where we uh, align ourselves with personalities, we get excited about groups of people, we come together and, and, and can really enjoy the fellowship that we have with one another. And what a blessing that is, and we should. But Father, if it doesn't make a difference in how we live our lives and what happens for your cause of Christ in the world, then we've fallen way, way short. So I pray that this morning that we are encouraged to live in the blessing of the unity, to preserve that unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace for the purpose of of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To take that saving message of faith in Him. And even though we may not be people who can articulate it well, we can know one thing. I know who He is, and I know what He's done. And may we be faithful to say it and live it in ways that impact the people around us. And may they look at what they see within our fellowship as a body. That harmony, not unlike the symphony, and just really be in awe of the beauty of the unity that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ because of our shared faith in you and our common mission to fulfill our one purpose for the sake of the gospel. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ.
Have a great day.